So needless to say, tonight will be a, um, a joint conversation, a joint discourse um, that neither of us has any idea of how it will, <laughs> how it will uh, what will come out. I do, however, know that there are a few things that I feel uh, very passionate about and I think are very useful at this time of the retreat and at any time in our life. And so I can't resist being able to talk about it and see what Eugene has to say about it and hopefully something will emerge. And we've pretty much led this retreat uh, just playing off of each other and seeing what emerges. So you've all been part of, the, of a little experiment We've also both relied on the, the, um, the support of the, of the essential teachings of the Buddha, teachings of awakening, and, and we'll try to stay within that domain as well tonight. <laughs> but this morning, uh, someone in the hall was uh, in the conversation about, I am not my thoughts or is it true that I'm not my feelings? And then the uh, concept came up in the conversation that was very, very central in the Buddha's awakening and in his teaching, which is the concept of Sakaya Ditti, of self-view. So I want to elaborate a little bit on that tonight and how that self-view interfaces with uh, the view that we have and the conventional reality that is, uh, that is true that we are going home tomorrow. And depending on our, how we construct in our mind or how our mind constructs a self-view, a view of ourself uh, going home, will determine to a great degree uh, how we feel, whether it's, uh, whether it's a smooth transi transition or not, what will also determine how it goes is whether or not you believe the way that you view going home or not. So this gets back to how you relate to the, to the thinking mind. One of my favorite teachers, uh, whose name is Anagarika Munindra, he was the teacher of our very dear heart teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who I consider my root Vipassana teacher. Spent many years sitting with him, three-month retreat after three-month retreat. His teacher, who he spent six years with in India, his name is Anagar Kamanindra, and I had the good fortune of, of being his attendant on retreats and, and sitting many retreats with him as well. And, really wonderful little uh, leprechaun kind of character, but just filled with Dharma. But he also, in the middle of it, he would just, he had great one-liners. One of the one-liners that we talked about during this retreat, and hopefully something that you can take home with you, uh, is the, the line, uh, the Dharma takes care of those who take care of the Dharma. There is a, a kind of, in spite of the inevitability of, okay, the Dharma takes care of those who take care of the Dharma. And when we talk about the Dharma here, it means taking care of the, of the uh, intention and the actions and the thoughts that, um, that are inclining our life toward living in truth. So not just a life, as Ashvagosa said, not just a life of self, but a life of truth and the living in harmony with the way things are. And those who take care of that, the Dharma takes care of those who take care of the Dharma. And, uh, and it's turned out to be true in spite of, of the inevitability, as I started to say, of, of the whole range of ups and downs that all human beings experience. Uh, there is some kind of uh, grace, some kind of magic that each, any person that I've ever met who gave their heart to the Dharma, they feel in some way protected by it. 
And so that's one of his one-liners. But the one I wanted to share tonight was a very simple line that will help you maybe relate to the idea that I'm not my thoughts. Uh, and it is uh, the simple line, a thought of your mother is not your mother. And you can hear from this short passage, a thought of your mother is not your mother, is that a, th a thought about your mother, any thought about anything is not that thing. So any thought that you have about yourself is a thought about yourself, it's not yourself. And having the good fortune of meeting with you and looking at you now after a few days of practice, feeling your sense of settledness and your, your presence, your, your living experience right here, I have very strong confidence that what your immediate and direct experience is sitting here, we've talked about this a lot on the retreat, is slightly different or quite different than the story about yourself that plays through your mind, the thoughts about yourself. In fact, I'm curious, what would you say about yourself if you were to simply speak from present evidence? If you didn't, if you don't for a few moments, as I like to say, consult your memory. If you don't look back and you don't look ahead, what would you say about yourself in real time? Anybody willing to speak into the I silence? Am. What's that? I am. I am enough. I am enough. Here now. Here now. This is. This is. <laughs> I'm the most fortunate of men. <laughs> <laughs> But how do you know that you're a man on present evidence? Now, this is, this is a, a little different story. Even though these are, these are still thoughts about yourself, that, and as all words will just approximate reality, they can never quite capture it. None of you are... None of us are, we, we are not able to capture our, that immediate experience. It just is not possible to, to uh, accurately say that in words, what reality is. In fact, there, reality is what happens after the word reality. We, we might disagree about some things. You'll hear later. <laughs> really? Why are you saying that? Well, reality is happening while you're saying the word reality. And what did I say? <laughs> reality is what happens after the word reality. No, I, I was inviting everyone to remove the word reality and experience reality happening. So to talk about it, I might have to use the word reality. <laughs> but... Notice what happens after the word. And then what would you, what would you say? So we have all kinds of words, and the words create compartments. And often the words about ourselves create a compartment of what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti. It creates a world of, of view of reality. And this view of reality that is part of our conventional thinking, part of what every person does, and it will continue to be part of what every person does, so we don't want to get rid of this, but we want to recognize the difference between the, the stories about ourselves, the thoughts about ourselves, and what that direct reality is. And we've been pointing to that through this whole retreat. 
as one, as the, uh, the, the naturalist, uh, James J. Audubon, I think his name, he says, if there's a difference between the, the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. <laughs> the field guidebook is saying that you are, it's describing your, your, the version of you that's in conventional reality, that you are someone, this gets back to this self and not self, you are someone here who is here in the present. So it already assumes there's a place called the present. But the story of you is someone who came from the past, who's passing through the present on our way to the future. That's generally the way that we think about ourselves. And the future, as we talked about earlier in the retreat, the future holds either danger or promise. It also, in our conventional self-view in Sakaya Ditti, when we were born and when we were born into that view, our life proceeds on this line that moves from the past, passes through the present, on our way to the future. And the future holds the key to happiness. And it holds danger, and it holds uh, promise, excitement, all kinds of things. But this is simply a story about ourselves. This is not reality. Reality, which I find amazing, is only and always now. And Eugene referred to this last night. We both have throughout the retreat. The, the funny thing is, none of us have ever, ever in our whole life left what we call the present. We have never left reality. We have imagined in the present, having come from somewhere else, on our way to somewhere else, and often turned, colored the present moment as though, as, as uh, Eckhart Tolle says, we've turned the present into an obstacle or the enemy, or a pass-through on our way to somewhere else. But the fact is, we've never left here. And we never do leave here. Even when we leave Spirit Rock tomorrow, in the conventional way of speaking, all of us are going home. Even when we leave Spirit Rock, we will be, let's say you happen to drive here. How many drove here? Okay, a lot of you. So you're going to be sitting behind the wheel. And you will be, as you sit behind the wheel, exactly where you are in the present time. And as, that, as you turn onto the highway, and hopefully you'll turn right and not left, <laughs> you will be exactly where you are. And as you zoom down that road, hopefully going the speed limit and not 10 miles per hour, <laughs> you will continue to be exactly where you are. So the Sakaya Ditti, the story of, of myself who lives and is going through time, is a, is a story that's often fraught with anxiety and fear because the prom, everything is about where my life is aiming, where it's going, and where I've been. As, uh, and when, it's, when our mind dwells in the view of ourselves as having come from the past, we're often dwelling in memories. And some of them are pleasant memories. One of my teachers, in fact, I think it was Menindra, said having uh, good karma is having pleasant memories. But we also have unpleasant memories. But it's not so much pleasant or unpleasant memories. Those are experiences that happen in our unfolding now, what we call now even though now doesn't have any boundaries to it. It's just... Not a problem if we recognize that thoughts of the past are, are um, arising, or thoughts of the future. But the tendency of our mind, if we are, you could say, incarnated in the view in Sakaya Ditti, we are literally that person 
who has come from the past and going to the, per going to the future. And when, it, and when we're dwelling on the past, there's often a, um, there's often a feeling, there's often feelings of um, regret or, you know, something, if it's, not, if it's not some kind of pleasant memory. As the poet Hafez says, uh, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange whale and worship. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. It's called stop being so religious. And I, I wrote another verse. Some of you have heard this before. What do people who are worried and anxious have in common? They've all built a shrine to the future and often go there to do a strange uh, wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness to stop being so religious like that? So being religious is, being, is building, a building a shrine to this world of time, past, future. Not being so religious is to wake up to the fact that both of those thoughts of past and future are apparitions, in some ways to describe a virtual you somebody in some way that doesn't even exist. You can agree or disagree. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, meaning, I, I realize we have different ideas about even how this is going to go. So I'm, I'm bringing it up now because okay. I, you know, I think you're thinking, oh, you're going to do a half an hour and then I'll do a half an hour. But I was thinking, oh, you would do a few minutes and then I'll do and we'll do it that way. <laughs> and so I'm just acknowledging that because okay. I'm having... I, I like what you're saying, all good, and I think I, it would be interesting if we mix it up a little more. So I'm giving you that opportunity to let me mix it up now. It's hard to say no to that. To <laughs> I, I hope I have some skillfulness about getting my way. Come on. Yeah. Well, I was, I was sharing all this as a, as a segue into into talking about how to handle the experience of going home. <laughs> and I think maybe it would be better if I just finished a few thoughts and then Please. you can... We'll, we'll. <laughs> so one of the central causes I've noticed over the years, and, and one that plagued me when I, especially because I did a lot of long practice periods uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, one of the things that plagued me was the 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 thought of myself as going home. And often the thought of it in my mind was taking the, the, the view that I created in my mind was that I'm a little, I'm taking my fledgling practice, my tremendous vulnerability, the little me, into this big world where I will, um, where I have to deal with so much. And when I would think about going into, sometimes I get excited about what things I was going to do, but often there would be this kind of anxiety about taking my little practice into life. And I constructed it because that's what my teachers even told me. You are going to have to integrate your practice into your, into your, uh, uh, into your life. So this practice seems so small compared to the largeness of life. And I didn't realize that that was just a story that actually nothing was, that my, the whole of my so-called integration consisted of unfolding present moments. That I always just am exactly where I am. And I couldn't handle a moment that hadn't happened yet, and I couldn't handle the one before, it's already passed. And then I realized this is, a, a, this, is this view of self, this Sakaya Ditti, this story of me in time, is the problem. It's not integrating my practice into my life. And so I, re I, I reframed the story to more accurately reflect what my moment-to-moment -moment experience can be. And that shift in reflection was, I'm going to integrate the life that presents itself, my, the people in my life as they show up, my email list as it shows up, everything, the road that I'm driving on as it shows up, knowing that I can't handle the moment before and I can't handle the next one, that I'm going to integrate the life that shows up as I stay where I am, I'm going to integrate it into my practice, which is always right here.
And once I did that, I realized I didn't have to go anywhere. And I didn't have to feel so anxious. And even if I felt anxious, I would know that there was some, the anxiety was somewhat related to my mind's projection of having entered into that world of, of self-view, the view of someone who moves from the past, passing through the present, on the way to the future, and in some moment not realizing that I have incarnated in a story. So when the Buddha saw through that tendency of mine, he let out a song. Because each time he saw that he was incarnating in these, uh, and every time he did that, he suffered. And you could, and so he let out a song. He said, through many births in this, in the wandering on, many times he was born into those views of reality. Through many births in the wandering on, I ran not seeking the maker of that house, just saw that it was thoughts. Oh, house builder. Oh, me and my builder. You've been seen. Uh, You're not going to get away with building that house and having me fall for it again. You're your uh, rafters have been broken, your ridgepole destroyed, which means ignorance. You see, a story of yourself is not yourself. My mind, and he finally said, my mind has gone to the unconditioned. And we are unconditionally present. And to get used to that, that we always are here. And so that's, that's my first piece. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Why do I have the sense that there's a little irritation? <laughs> I was waiting for you to interact a little more. or I, I didn't expect the long Dharma talk. Oh, That's okay. All. I wasn't, okay. again, like I said, I, we hadn't clarified what we were doing. Right, so okay. I thought it was a little more interactive. And I'm a little more used to that from some of the other teaching I do because we teach in teams more in, than the form we do here of oh, team see. teaching. Okay. But, but um, <laughs> so I have my view and my, uh, uh, what's it called? Sensibility? No, no. Sakaya Ditti. Sakaya Ditti, yeah. <laughs> I have my Sakaya Ditti and I don't have a problem with that. That's okay. okay. I have some self-view and, cause I, and I love what you're saying. Really, beautiful. And I just would contextualize it a little differently because you're pointing at uh, a version of the two truths, right? Exactly. Sakaya ditti is just relative reality. It's totally normal to have Sakaya ditti. And I've known Mr. Cohn for many years, and he still has some Sakaya ditti. Really? <laughs> just a te- very little, but mostly it's just <laughs> ultimate reality flashing before us. But... but um, but I have some different ways that I think about it that maybe will be helpful and maybe not, let's see. Um, because I think, I think the relaxing about the Sakaya Ditti, which you're pointing at, mm-hmm. is, is key. But watching out for having judgments, self-judgments, spiritual judgments, watch out for that. Whenever an ideal is positive, in the spiritual world. If we're not there, then what's wrong with us? What's the problem? Oh, it's because I'm not a good enough yogi. I'm not a good enough Dharma student. I haven't studied enough. Comes into the Mm. picture when we present this freedom as being some uh, ultimate that has a rule or an idea around it at all. And you heard that in what I was saying? I'm just saying the Sakai Diddy can be heard that way. <laughs> um, it may be in what you're saying, but you know, you were trying to make your point, so I appreciate that. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so, and it's one of the keys, of course, with the relative and the ultimate, is everybody I know thinks, oh, the ultimate is what we want, mm. right? And the relative is, okay, but how do we get past it? Instead of understanding, as I believe I was pointing out a little last night, that the relative and ultimate are really within one truth. And it's the truth that you were pointing to when you say, oh, we're here all the time. It doesn't matter if we're doing our normal reality, because really what's happening is we're here. 
And so I, I love that because then I can say some of the things I thought about. <laughs> 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 and, and really, it's just because we haven't done this style of teaching. And it's a great, you know, there's a lot of love here. So it's fun to do it and learn how to do it as we're doing it. Because that's how it's really going to happen anyways. We couldn't have figured this out beforehand. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so this question of going home, which is how I was thinking and how we've been talking about what, what would be valuable tonight given that you're going home tomorrow and you're, you're going into conventional reality and doing your conventional life and what does it mean for that to become as you said beautifully like that you learned the dharma that for me that was the key piece that i want to echo and continue to expand how do you start here i'll say it a little differently in more eugene kind of language which is oh what do you love like what do you love what's the what what do you value What's the most important thing to you? The most important thing. You know, what is it? Is it, do you love people? Do you love the world? Do you love yourself? Do you love reality? Do you love the Dharma? What, what do you love? And how can you live that love 24-7? Because that love is what draws us with our heart and our head and our body forward. And I, I have a great faith in that love. The Buddha loved freedom. That is so clear when you read the text. He loved freedom and he was willing to do whatever it took to be free or not even to be free because people kept telling him that the freedom he sought did not exist, which was really... You know, that's a tough thing to hear, you know, if you're seeking. And then people say, no, that, that's not really possible. And he, but his love took him forward to go beyond the conventional, but took him through the conventional. And so I, I totally appreciate that, the here-ness you're pointing at in terms of not being limited by Sakaya Ditti. And that's really the key with working with the Dharma principles. It's about, it's not about, oh, you have to change everything or be some other person. It's starting to see through the limitations that have gotten created because we're not enlightened yet. And so we want to work with the reality that's here and then see what we discover in terms of the Dharma and, the, and what the Buddha pointed at, he said, could re be revealed right here, right here. And I like to emphasize this right here-ness because most of us really believe it's not really possible right here. And one of the great things the Buddha said, oh no, oh no, it's really possible here. Even if you're lying down in the Dharma hall, which we're not supposed to really encourage you to do. So I wanted to throw that in in a nice way. Because <laughs> we talked about saying it and it never got said. We forgot. <laughs> we forgot. Yeah. So I'm trying to weave in a bunch of things here. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> so... So, and here's a, a teeny bit more, and then let's, let's continue. But the, um, this is from Ajahn Chah. And so we're in the, we, we teach and have studied and practiced, and Ajahn Chah is one of our mentors, all of us, because we're in that stream of understanding that came through Ajahn Chah, and then in this case through Jack Cornfield, and through Spirit Rock. And he said, we study the Dharma to learn the Dharma. We study the Dharma to learn the Dharma. We learn the Dharma to practice the Dharma. We study the Dharma to learn the Dharma. We learn the Dharma to practice the Dharma. We practice the Dharma to realize the Dharma. We learn the Dharma. We study to learn. We learn to practice. 
we practice to realize the Dharma, and we realize the Dharma to live the Dharma. And so that's what we're doing here. We're not just doing, we're not just studying the Dharma, or we're not just learning the Dharma, or we're not just, you know, practicing the Dharma, or not just realizing Dharma, and we're not even just living the Dharma. All of those are living engagements with reality. And the reality, when I say reality, feel yourself, feel the aliveness that's right here. That's the reality we're talking about or pointing at might be a better way to put it. And so what we're both suggesting and we totally agree on, even if we have different ways of talking sometimes, um, <laughs> um, is, oh, what does it mean to live the Dharma? Because you already know something. You've already tasted something. You've already realized something. Don't, even if you're not enlightened, don't pretend you don't know something. Because if you didn't know something, you wouldn't be here. And let that knowing begin to live in the world. And, and instead of coming to Spirit Rock and doing sitting meditation and walking meditation and you know interactive meditation and food eating meditation and work meditation and you know peeing and shitting meditation whatever you know because and all Spirit Rock is offering is a template for oh what's possible to live the Dharma that Howie was pointing at. And so now we take it on, we continue when we, as he, right, drive home, you know. Don't drive to, too close to Howie or me, but you know, <laughs> that, that's skillful. <laughs> but, no, but re really, and that, at least if you care about the Dharma or love the Dharma or love freedom or love compassion and you want that, then what could be more satisfying than to live the Dharma and let it be realized right where you are. Not at Spirit Rock or not at some mountaintop or not just in Asia or not somewhere else, but right where you're sitting. Seems like a good, seems like a good time to share a, a short story that uh, was passed on to me uh, at a retreat about living the Dharma in the form of, of self-compassion, of compassion. And it's something that, uh, that in, our, in the abstract, we all talk about being kind to ourselves and, and caring, and, and we train some in the, in the metta, etc. But where the rubber meets the road is where, where it's hard in our daily life. And, and hopefully, in our own creative way, we awaken that, we come to our own rescue. And one of the things that we can realize on retreat, as you sit here with, with your bodies in reality, is you can, you can sense that this body, in the quiet, we, we start to feel, as Eugene was talking about, we become intimate with all things. You start to feel that you're not really separate from everything that influences you. He quoted Nagarjuna last night. He said uh, uh, that, that whole passage, I forgot what the passage was, but I thought of another one, that, that something that really dawns on us as we're here, and it's a little bit, it's a little wordy, but it, maybe you'll get the feeling. He says, you're not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. So when, you, when we're quiet, we realize, okay, if I wasn't here, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, be able to sense this. But, so I am here as an individual. So, but when I'm quiet, I feel very connected to everything around me. And I start to feel that I'm connected to the elements. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for earth, air, fire, water. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my parents, my culture, and all the things that have come to influence me. So my view of myself, getting back to self-view, that's often one of self-blaming, one of, I'm living apart from the flow of life, uh, I should be different than the way, all that stuff that actually uh, opposes compassion and metta. These 
negative judgments, they come from a, mis a mistaken perception of reality. We are not the same, nor are we separate from that which we depend. And this is something we intuit while we're here. That's why we fall in love with each other. That's why on the third, the third fourth, fifth day, sometimes on retreats you'll start, people will start leaving flowers and, and you just, the heart opens and we feel that connection. But in daily life, we start to get bound up again. There's a tendency to forget that sense of intimacy. So having, being able to carry and practice that that self-compassion instead of self-blame, self-compassion. And that's just a lead into this little story. It's entitled, Two More Isles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, now Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle. And the little girl began to shout for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica he began, whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My, my little girl's name is Tammy. <laughs> so how many of us actually, <laughs> so sorry, how many of us approach ourselves with that kind of patience and love and care and often when we're most tense is when we make a case for the prosecution, most judge ourselves. And living the Dharma means, means uh, knowing that the fruit of, uh, of ill will is more ill will. The fruit of love is love. It's just one simple, tiny example of something that, uh, that we, are very, we are trainable we can continually plant the seeds of kindness and self-care. And it's the most unselfish thing we can do. <laughs> that was very kind. <laughs> Seeing if I have something to follow that. Mm. I mean, I, I can follow it easy enough, but. Oh, yeah, go for it. I have more, too, if you want. I'm, I'm, sure, you, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I think, well, let's, let me say this. The uh, piece that you're talking about is something we've wanted to say a little yeah, more about. Exactly. And so, and because we have, we, it's been a, relatively short retreat and we've been uh, oriented towards the direct experience of what's happening right here right now and of course that with that is some of our assumption that we all understand what you're pointing at right now which is the love and care and kindness that is intricately woven the face real the face of immediacy as practice well. yeah, yeah. The, okay the face of immediacy is how some people might say it is, is <laughs> I would say the heart of immediacy it doesn't just have a face it has this heart the face is love okay I mean, that's what I said <laughs> thank you for helping me with that um, and and so it it again points to um, 
I'm going to again jump to the relative. Please. Because when we're talking about going home and living this kind of life and living the kindness that Howie's pointing at and the care and the warmth and the compassion, it means um, it asks for us to be, uh, uh, to practice in a way we're not familiar with. And that's something that, it's called practice, right? It's not called perfect. Practice begins to reveal what we're talking about or pointing at or what we love or what we care about. And it starts to let it become more alive or more of a living reality as well as an understanding or a conceptual understanding. And so, <clears throat> and so even the fact that we're saying, oh, you're going home, as if that's different from right here, is a little bit the misunderstanding that you're saying. And the kindness is seeing, oh, reality is right here. And the, and the, the care and love can live right here at Spirit Rock and maybe everywhere. Dogen said this, he said, those who see worldly life as an obstacle to dharma see no dharma in everyday actions. They have not yet discovered there are no everyday actions outside of dharma. Right? It's, and so really a little bit what we're suggesting and, and encouraging is from Sakaya Ditti, a different view, not only of self, but of life. Self, life, reality. And then what's possible is not limited by our view because it's all actually, and this is one of the few things I could stand behind, it's all totally the Dharma. Because what else could it be except misunderstanding and not seeing the way things are? Because reality is happening, as far as I can tell, I mean, I could say some nice Buddhist things based on conditions and this and that, and those are all good, and they have their relative understanding, but reality is totally magical. That we're... We, we say this, we talk, you know, that I'm saying something and you understand or think you understand. I mean, even that, that's all just totally, amazingly magical that we're communicating. And of course, we take it for granted, so we often miss the beauty or the magic or the mystery of what's sitting here living right now. That hearing and speaking and seeing and tasting and touching the whole thing is, wow. Yeah, and this is often what's missed while we're busy making plans. Right. And uh, So I want to say one more yeah, thing. please. Uh, which is just the relative is a real part of practice. It's part of the wow. So one of the things, and this is, there's different ways, different doorways that the Dharma um, reveals itself through, and it's different for each of us. So we've talked, to, we know each other a bit, and I remember things that have happened to Howie, and Howie knows things that have happened to me, and oh, the Dharma opened up in these different ways. It's not like one's right and one's wrong. It's like, oh, that's how beautiful and magical the Dharma is. And so, um, and so the relative and just practice becomes one of the doorways and a beautiful doorway. So one way I like to encourage people and myself totally to think about going home is how, do you, how could we make each aspect of that experience a practice? And, and sometimes it's helpful to think that way in that linear or dualistic way in order to begin to highlight the magic that's available in any particular that we're engaged in. And so, like I have here, uh, you know, the maturation of practice as householders 
um, asks an effort no less than it takes to live as a monastic. Right? It, pardon? Louder. I'll try. Okay. The maturation of our practice as householders requires an effort no less than it takes to live as a monastic. Right? It is imperative that we cultivate a palette of practices like mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, service, reflection, investigation, devotion, study, precept, livelihood, relationship, etc. In this way, we weave a life in which each activity becomes a Dharma gate in order to, quote, live the holy life, unquote, as lay people. Okay, so that's a beautiful understanding of, of using the normal, ordinary, conventional reality to be a doorway or a dharma gate to discover the unconventional reality. That's, and they're both always, they're all right here. It's right here. And that quote was from Eugene Cash. Cool. <laughs> no wonder I was so impressed. <laughs> it's very nice. It's funny, as Eugene was speaking, I was, I was thinking about how, how one of the ways the Sakaya Diddy work is it presents it as such a and even somewhat in that, it presents it as such a big task. And, and it's reasonable to think about it as, a to, as the, requiring the totality of our life. But it's also, in some ways, not, it's much more, it can be really accessible and really simple. Now, any moment in your life, you're having a moment where you're suffering. You can simply apply what we did during, that, during the metta. You can stop for, it takes no time basically. This is a moment of suffering. How long does that take? Suffering's like this. Life has suffering in it, I can remember. And we can rub our hearts and we know that that, it takes a few seconds for the vagus nerve to be stimulated and to, for the brain to release oxytocin. And then you say, can I meet this with kindness? It takes no time. These little ways where practice is so accessible, and yet our mind will project the enormity and impossibility of it all. So this, uh, there's a, a beautiful little poem from da Dana Falds. James Barris is mad for her, her writing, and so I received some of these from him. He says, it, it, takes, it only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still. And just like that, something in me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper. And I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget, to catch myself charging forward without ever knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, and be, and walk slowly into the mystery. Now, how long does that take? It takes eight hours or so to go to Los Angeles. How long does it take to come back to yourself? So it's both a tall task, enormous and so accessible and immediate. So uh, I love that, Be beautiful. So, but I like a question comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Let's see what you think. Because um, um, you're saying something that's totally true, but for most of us, it's not that simple, even though it is that simple. Right? And yeah, so the question is, what allows it to simplify so that that gate is open? Because mm -hmm. that's what I assume uh, practice is helping us with. Beautiful question. Well, for me, the first thought 
the first response is, is being um, two things. Being close to teachings mm -hmm. and being close to other yogis, keeping good company. Those have, have, being reflected mm -hmm. in an ongoing way, mm -hmm. your values and what you, what's important to you, is just absolutely invaluable. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is the, I think, Sangha, keeping like-minded company, has been the, the true lifeblood of keeping it simple. And there is, a, there is a tendency, especially in our individualistic minds, to isolate. And we associate with freedom, mm -hmm. freedom with doing what we want. And yet there's a, there's a freedom, that, that a kind of freedom that we don't usually recognize that comes from offering ourselves and receiving uh, support, as we talked about the first night, the power of Sangha. So that's the first thing. That, and then, of course, when you hear teachings, they remind you. And so the good news, uh, I think the, great, the greatest grace about my own being able to serve in this function mm -hmm. is that I'm reminding myself all the time. Mm -hmm. And it works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if, you don't, if you're not doing the reminding, let yourself be reminded at least. Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So, so then when I think about that in the conventional life, since most people aren't Dharma teachers, right? And right, exactly. I, I totally appreciate what you're saying about being in the roles that we're in. That then it is a very interesting question about, oh, how to keep connected or plugged in to what we care about and have and keep letting the uh, vision and life of that be seen by us through sangha and friendship and and whatever other means whether it's books or, or whatever it is or hearing the dharma online or anything like that so again for me that becomes part of oh, what does it mean to create a life of practice even though we're living a lay life. Because that's, that's inherent in the monastic life, right? That's just, that's the way it's designed, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. You're with the like-minded and your teachings and, and practices. That's what you're doing all the time. And so what we're, what we're being asked, and this is true for all of us, we're being asked if we want to wake up, what does it mean to create our life as it is, as a Dharma life? And that, that's where the being present becomes important, and the Sangha, and the reflection, and the intention, I believe, which me really when I say the word intention, it's not my favorite word, it's a fine, fine word, but really for me it's, oh, where do you really let the heart lead? Because if aim. the heart, pardon? Aim. Aim. Kind of aim. Or yeah, but it's the heart leading us, not us leading the heart. Mm. Right? And so then the heart takes us to what we care about and what's important or what's valuable. You could think about it different ways. And it doesn't mean we quit our work or quit our relationships or quit anything. That's also part of the beauty of the Dharma's accessibility because really it's sitting in your seat the dharma i'm going to put a big d on everybody's back before you leave so yeah. <laughs> so that's not because we forget that oh what I, somebody said i don't remember who oh you are what you seek and that's a beautiful understanding and the teachings say, as it's expressed in the Tibetan tradition, go, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant that's already at home sitting in front of your own hearth. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant when it's already at home, right here. Mm -hmm. so, what are, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I love what um, Eugene's saying about the, uh, that it doesn't mean you leave your job or it has to look a certain way, but that the, that the Dharma authenticity congruence is the hub around which you live your life and do whatever you do. Right. And that, that a, a wonderful template that many people find helps them stay attuned to that is the, is the fourth noble truth, is the noble eightfold path. It's not something you follow like commandments. None of the teachings are. They're, they're just places of um, inquiry. So what is your relationship to livelihood? What is your relationship to speech? What is your relationship to, to action, to sexuality, to intoxicants? How, how can I use that to, to wake up? And what, is my, what does it mean to me to cultivate the wholesome, to maintain the wholesome, to abandon the unwholesome, and to prevent the unarisen unwholesome from arising? That's w about wise effort. What does that mean to you? And can, how can that become alive in your life? And then, what does concentration mean? What does mindfulness mean? What is wise understanding? Uh, wise intention, getting back to mm -hmm. where's the heart mm. moving. So if you forget, the Eightfold Path is a good, it's a good reminder. Mm. And the beauty of the teachings is you don't have to adopt any views. The whole point was to brush the dust of memory so you could see for yourself what's true. And uh, it doesn't have to be a religion. I always say the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He was awake. And what do you see when you're awake? And what do you do and how do you talk to yourself and to others? when you're awake. So I'm pretty much done. I would read something from the uh, Buddha Charita. Buddha Charita. As you wish. <laughs> oh, that's um, that's Ashvagosha. No, yeah, it is Ashvagosha. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's what I alluded to that uh -huh. earlier. Great. Well, then I'll give you Ashvagosha. <laughs> the Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world, unless he or she is feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's heart, and to live a life of awakening. And whatever people do, whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic, and if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, yeah, this is what you said, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. <laughs> Let's sit for a moment. May we all live the Dharma.
all find peace. May we all find happiness. May we all find peace and happiness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.